Our gracious Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together today, the Lord's Day. As a family, we remember that we are not to forsake the gathering of the saints, as some do. And our Father, as we come to your word today, we pray that you will show us how desperately we need Christ. We pray that you would show us the utter futility of relying on ourselves for salvation. We pray that you would use your word to accomplish your work in us. So give us grace, Lord, to not only understand, but to apply what we learn today to our lives, that Christ would be greatly lifted up and magnified in our lives and during this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Matthew, the book of Matthew, chapter 11. And if you're wondering why we are in Matthew today, it's because it's Reformation Sunday, which means that uh, for our time together today, we're going to be continuing with a study that we've actually been doing for, uh, this is our fourth year doing it. Uh, Every year on the last Sunday of October, we've been doing a study on the doctrines that were recovered in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Of course, uh, the end of October, October 31st, is when Martin Luther started the Reformation. And so, uh, this is Reformation Sunday, a day that we are are studying uh, the doctrines that were recovered in the Protestant Reformation. There are a lot of people uh, in our day and age who don't see what the big deal is about the Protestant Reformation. And there are even... Protestants uh, who, who don't understand what the big deal about the Reformation is. I'll just say this, the reason that it's a big deal is because the most important truths that have ever been given to man are on the line. What are those truths? They're the doctrines that we refer to as the solas. Uh, sola is the Latin word for alone. Now there were five doctrines that were recovered in the Protestant Reformation that used that word alone or, or sola. So that's why we call it the five solas. Uh, the doctrines that held these, these vital, these crucial truths are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. So as you listen to those, I mean, you get the sense that this word alone is central to, uh, to the faith. It's, it's important to all these things, um, and, and it is. It is. That word is, is crucial. Without those word, without that word in those doctrines, uh, you end up with something less. See, what happened to bring about the need for the Protestant Reformation, remember, Protestant, uh, the term there comes, uh, comes from protesting. Uh, but what happened to bring about the need for a protest, the, the need for a reformation, is that the Roman Catholic Church affirmed the authority of Scripture, but they didn't affirm the authority of Scripture alone. They affirmed the need for grace, but they didn't affirm the fact that grace alone is our hope. They affirmed the need for faith, but you guessed it, they didn't affirm the need for faith alone. And I would even argue that they eventually denied that salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now that might sound shocking to you, uh, that I would say that, and it should. But here's what they said. In, In 1964, the Second Vatican Council made this declaration. They said, quote, The plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator, in the first place among whom are the Muslims. uh, These profess to hold the faith of Abraham, and together with us they adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day, end quote. And by saying that, they are denying that salvation is in Christ alone. Now, if you know anything about Islam, you know that uh, they don't have their faith in Christ. They're not Christians. They, they believe that Jesus was a real person, but they believe that Jesus was a prophet. And yet they deny that he's the Son of God. And they also deny that he died uh, to atone for our sins. They certainly do not view him as being God incarnate. They do not view him as Lord or Savior. So what we see here is that there's a lot at stake. 
because we understand that the one who doesn't know Christ doesn't know God. Let me say that again, because this is central to the doctrine of Christ alone. The one who doesn't know Christ doesn't know God. Someone who denies that Jesus is God incarnate doesn't know God. And the person who doesn't know God is destined for eternal hell. That's what's at stake here. This is important. This is, there's nothing more important than the salvation of souls uh, that, that we can affirm. So today, we're going to study the next link in this chain of solas. We've seen that Scripture alone is our authority, that Scripture reveals that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and today we will study the doctrine which relates to the object of our faith, Christ alone. And the point of the passage that we'll be looking at today is that nobody knows God except through Christ alone. And nobody is saved by God except in Christ alone. Now the complaint against this doctrine, you can guess it. The complaint is, that is so narrow. Uh, the world loves these, these broad, uh, inclusive brushes, right? These, these broad roads that include everybody, or as many people as possible at least. And so to say that we cannot and will not be saved, but in Christ alone, is not broad, to say the very least. And so it strikes people as just being very restrictive, so confining, so cramping, so exclusive. But see, it's, it's not about being an exclusive club or, or anything like that. It's about truth. It's about the truth that Scripture has revealed, that God has revealed to us in His Word. And having the attitude within ourselves that whatever God says trumps whatever I might feel or whatever my opinion might be about something. And the Bible makes it clear that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Now, if you understand who Jesus is, and if you understand what Jesus did, you understand why there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved, and that is Jesus' name, and Jesus alone. See, the question that drove the Reformation is the most important question of all time, which is this. How can a sinful human being be reconciled to a holy and righteous God? How do sinners, vile, wretched sinners, which we all are, how do sinners escape the wrath of God and find themselves instead in His grace? Well, let's start with the answer that the Roman Catholic Church came up with. The answer that the Roman Catholic Church came up with ultimately boiled down to this kind of answer. You plug yourself into our system. You put yourself on our treadmill. The problem with their system is that their system was one of earning merit, at least earning some merit. They believed that most people, uh, you know, they wouldn't be able to earn enough merit to actually get to heaven, and so they came up with the idea of purgatory, uh, where you would go and... Uh, pay the consequence for your own sins. Uh, and, and then they invented the treasury of merit. Uh, so you do all these good works uh, to save somebody else. Your good works go into the treasury of merit, uh, which gets applied to the people who are waiting in purgatory, which is a totally unbiblical concept, by the way. And then you plan on spending a few thousand years in purgatory yourself to atone for your own sins, waiting for somebody to shorten that sentence by adding to the treasury of merit. Further, you could gain merit by giving money to the Roman Catholic Church, by buying relics and things like that. This is where we get the little phrase that goes, as soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Let me ask you this. Does that sound like Christianity to you? Paying your way, paying somebody else's way out of heaven, does that sound like Christianity to you? It's not. 
It's, it's not even close. It's, it's a religious system that really isn't any different from all the other world religions in the world. It's a system which views everybody as being savable, but it denies that we are actually saved. It, 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 it views people as being savable, but it denies that our salvation is accomplished by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, the Roman Catholic Church did affirm that God would give somebody grace along the way, uh, but they denied that salvation was by grace alone. They'd say things like, uh, God will not deny grace to those who do their best. That's not biblical. I mean, who does their best? How many of you can honestly say that every moment of every day, you've done your best? Nobody, right? Nobody. Has there ever been a time when you could honestly say that you couldn't have been a little bit better, a little bit holier, a little bit more pious? I mean, and how good is good enough? See, it was all left vague, unclear, and Martin Luther caught on to that. But the Roman Catholic Church had no answers to questions like this. How much? For how long? How many times? And we should note, by the way, the Roman Catholic Church still doesn't have answers to questions like these. But the true church has always understood that we are saved by grace alone, that we don't add anything to our salvation except, as Jonathan Edwards noted, the sin which makes our salvation necessary. Our best deeds, Isaiah tells us, are but filthy rags to God. Grace is received through faith alone, and even faith itself is a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's not the doing of man. If it were, we'd have something to boast about. But God, by His grace, has given us eyes to see, has given us ears to hear, and hearts to believe. Believe in what? That's the question. That's a very important question because there's only one answer, and we have to get this right. In Christ, and in Christ alone. Do you hear how different that is from this system that the medieval Roman Catholic Church had come up with? I mean, these two things aren't even really close to being the same thing. You've got a system that depends on you and you sticking with it, and then you've got a system of grace where it's already done for you, and you just receive it through faith. That's how important the word alone is. Without it, the best we have is a system wherein God might help us some, or maybe not. We just can't know. We can't be sure. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't die to make us savable. He accomplished our salvation entirely. That's what the Bible teaches. And so as we come to our text in Matthew chapter 11 today, we should understand that the Jews were actually very similar to the Roman Catholic Church. They had developed this system that denied that salvation was found by grace alone, through faith alone. And so as Jesus went around in his region performing miracles, he was met with startling unbelief from the people who saw the miracles. And so, as we set the context for the passage that we're going to look at today, we see that he responds by denouncing them, noting that if he had done these same miracles for pagans, that these pagans would have responded by repenting in sackcloth and ashes. He finishes verse 24 by saying to these people, he says, it will be more tolerable to the land of Sodom in the last day of judgment than for you. Why does he say that? Because these people just saw God incarnate working miracles, and Sodom didn't. And so their judgment will be stricter. So after saying this, Jesus begins praying. And he might not be praying what you would expect Jesus to pray. So, so listen to what he says. We'll pick it up in verses 25 and 26. We read this. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. What would you have expected Jesus to pray there? If, if we didn't have verses 25 and 26 and it just said Jesus prayed, 
What would you expect Jesus to have prayed here, given the context, given the rejection that he's just faced? Maybe you would expect Jesus to pray that the Father would, would open the eyes of these unbelieving people's hearts. Uh, he doesn't. Maybe you'd expect him to have prayed that the Father would just bring down fire from heaven now, just unleash his wrath on them. But he doesn't. Instead, he prays a prayer of praise to the Father. He praises the Father for two things. Number one, he praises the Father for hiding these truths from the wise. And number two, he praises the Father for revealing these truths to infants. So let's start with this. We need to understand who he's talking about. Who are the wise? Who are the wise? They're people, including the Jewish leaders, obviously, but he's not referring to them alone. There's our favorite word. He's not referring just to the Jewish leaders. He's talking to all the people who were rejecting him, who were convinced that they knew God, who were convinced that they understood God, but they had done so through their own wisdom. They were rejecting what Jesus was saying because they had their own preconceived notions. They had developed their own and participated in their own system of merit based on their own wisdom and understanding. And the wise here are contrasted with whom? With infants. This doesn't mean that somebody has to be a baby to become a Christian or to be saved, but those to whom the truth is revealed are likened to infants, likened to small children. Why is that? Because infants, as you new moms especially, moms and dads know, infants depend on their parents for absolutely everything. Not, not, we're not talking about small, just small children. We're talking about infants. They depend on their parents for absolutely everything. They can't do anything for themselves. They can't find food. They can't gather food for themselves. They can't provide for themselves. They can't even change their own diaper. All they can do is depend on receiving what their parents give them and do for them. So God says that these are the people whom God reveals these truths to, but he hides them from the wise. Well, where does God hide these truths that aren't revealed to the wise? The answer is in Christ. That's where all these truths are hidden. All the truths that are necessary for a vile, wretched sinner to be reconciled to God are found in plain sight in Jesus. The one place where the wise and the proud and the esteemed wouldn't dare to look, have no desire to look. They would not come to the light to find the truth. Why? Because they love the darkness. Because they love the darkness. They love sin. Who then are the infants who would receive the revelation of these truths? Those who were willing to depend entirely on what God gives them. Those who were willing to depend entirely on God's grace, the humble in spirit, those who were not wise by human standards. Think about the disciples, for example. I mean, these aren't people who were super educated. These aren't people who were elite uh, citizens of society. They weren't educated. They weren't philosophers. They weren't scholarly. No, they were like, Tax collectors, you know, who were brutal people, by the way. They were fishermen who, again, they're, they're kind of big, brutal people. Uh, they were rebels, uh, insurrectionists, Simon the Zealot. Uh, again, big, brutal people, not necessarily your smartest or wisest people. But Paul wrote to the, to, uh, the church in Corinth, uh, basically talking about the same thing that Jesus is here. He says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. He says, For consider your calling, brethren, so he's only talking to Christians. For consider your calling, brethren, that there, there were not many wise according to the flesh, 
Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has, get, has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the reason for this is spelled out in verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. So Paul's essentially saying the same thing that Jesus was here. Now back to our text in Matthew, what are these things that Jesus is referring to that are, that are hidden? It's truth. It's truth. The truth about himself. Truth about his identity as God incarnate, the Messiah, the one who would make atonement as a propitiatory substitute on behalf of all who believed in him. These are the truths that the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, those are the people he's talking to. These are the truths that they had completely missed, or we might more accurately say rejected. Jesus couldn't have made it a whole lot more clear here that God is sovereign in deciding whom these truths are hidden from and to whom they are revealed. So he obscures the truth for some. But he graciously reveals himself and the truth about himself to others. Not only does God hide the truth from some people, but Jesus says that this was good. He says that this was well-pleasing in God's sight. Now let me say this. I know that this is something that makes people uncomfortable. I know that the idea that God doesn't reveal to everybody the same thing makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But how many of you realize that God only wills and decrees and does that which is good? That's what pleases him. What he wills, what he decrees, what he does, it's always good. It's always just. It's always righteous. And this is what we have to keep in mind when we see that God has sovereignly chosen to hide the truth from some. If God tells us that he is well pleased by doing this, by revealing the truth to some but not to others, we have to understand that it's good because God is always always good. And even when we don't understand why this is good, even when we don't understand how this could possibly be a good thing, what we can understand is that God, whatever he does, is right. Whatever he does is good. Whatever he does is just, regardless of how we feel about it. Even when we don't understand. But the point that we have to gather from these two verses is that the truths that Jesus is referring to here were truths that were hidden in him, in Christ alone. How do we know? Look at verse 27 with me. Let's look at verse 27. He continues praying, saying, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So what he says here is that all things have been given to the Son, to Jesus by the Father. He says all things. Uh, remember what he said before, that things were hidden. So this would certainly include these things that Jesus referred to back in verse 25. Uh, the truths about him, the truths about salvation. So what we must understand is that if someone doesn't come to Christ, they're not going to find the truths that are hidden in him anyplace else. They won't find them. They won't have access to them in any other person, in any other institution, in any other system. They won't find those truths anywhere else. They are entirely in the possession of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so the person who refuses to come to Jesus remains lost in the darkness because they cannot know God if they do not come to God's Son. Now, as you consider just verse 27 here, uh, put your finger over the last, uh, the last uh, phrase there, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. If you just put your finger over that and the sentence ended right there, 
before those, those 10 words. Here's what it would say. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. What a terrifying thing it is to even leave out or omit 10 words, 10 small, simple words from God's Word. If Jesus had ended right there, what we'd be stuck with is that nobody knows God and nobody can know God. Except God, of course. And this becomes terrifying when we remember the truth that's found in Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. When Jesus says, uh, when Jesus says that to know God and to know Jesus himself is eternal life. He says this in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The question is then, how can we know God? How can we know God? Where can we find eternal life? And the answer is, in Christ. In Christ alone. And yet, while it's true that the Son reveals the Father, it's also true that the Father reveals the Son. Remember, uh, when Peter confessed Christ as the Messiah, uh, Jesus asked the, the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter blurted out, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said back to Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So, the reason Peter knew the answer to that question is because the Father had revealed to Peter who Jesus is. And so, just like the Son is the one who reveals the Father, the Father is also the one who reveals the Son. So, if we know the Son, it's because the Father has revealed Him to us. And if you know the Father... It's because the Son has revealed Him to us. We don't know Him and won't seek Him on our own, not in our own understanding and not by our own will to seek. And here we're confronted with what really boils down to being the fundamental problem that all of humanity faces. Man's fundamental problem is not that we don't know God. No, our most basic fundamental problem is that in man's natural condition, in his fallen state, man does not want God, does not seek God, and refuses to honor God as God. Romans 1 verses 20 and 21 says this, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their, and their foolish heart was darkened. So, see, here's the thing. We know that God is real, but it's man's fallen nature to suppress that truth. And as a result of, of suppressing that truth, because we don't want to live under God's authority, as a result of suppressing that truth, a person begins to speculate in futility, to, to speculate aimlessly about the truth about reality, and their heart is darkened. And this is true about you and your natural condition, and it's true about me and my natural condition. You know, I, I used to have just the most ridiculous ideas about God. I mean, I, like the silliest ideas about God. And I know some of you did too. Some of you have told me about some of the silly beliefs that you used to have about God. Our own lives bear witness to the truth of what Scripture says. Now when you first read this verse, the, the, uh, verse 27, it might sound very confusing because Jesus seems to be saying that the Father and the Son know each other, but nobody else knows either one of them. But what we understand is we learn more about God is that the amount of knowledge that we have about God um, can always be improved upon, right? That's, that's part of what Jesus is getting at here. Uh, he, he's, he's saying uh, our knowledge of God is so small, even as converted people, 
Even as converted people, our knowledge is so small that even the most mature believer is closer to knowing nothing about God than knowing everything about him. We, we, we understand that God is, is infinite, right? And we understand that we're finite, and we understand that that's like comparing a, a, a teaspoon with a gallon uh, and expecting that teaspoon to contain what a gallon can. It can't. But the important thing is that nobody knows the Father except anyone, Jesus says, whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus alone makes the Father known. Not necessarily known fully. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, even in in glory. But Jesus makes the Father known. And the only way to know the Father is if the Son reveals him to you. So is there any way into this relationship with God and the Son? There is. In Christ. And in Christ alone. God the Father sent the Son into the world to reveal God in all of His goodness, in all of His grace, in all of His glory. So if I come to Christ with the faith of a child, of an infant, realizing I'm incapable of doing anything on my own, not dictating the terms and conditions, not demanding that he be what I want him to be so that I'm really living under my own authority still, but if I simply come to him as an infant, willing to be entirely dependent on him, nothing to give but an open hand to receive whatever he gives me, what I'll find is that Christ and Christ alone has everything to give. He'll bring me into God's family. I'll be an adopted child. He'll pay the debt that I owe to God for all my sin, covering me in his grace and his mercy. And he'll credit his own obedience, his perfect righteousness to me, so that it will be as though I had never broken God's law in his eyes. So that when God looks on me, he'll see the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because Christ has imputed, his perfect righteousness has been imputed to me. So in him, in Christ alone, I find eternal life, grace, redemption, forgiveness. Now your reaction to that might be to think that it's unfair that Jesus only reveals the Father to some, but not all. But we have to see that the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation does not nullify man's responsibility. See, here's the tendency that some people have. If you've ever heard of hyper-Calvinism, this is what hyper-Calvinism does. They say, okay, God is sovereign over salvation, right? So I don't have to do anything. I don't have to urge people to repent. I don't have to preach the gospel because if God's going to save somebody, God's just going to save somebody. But one of the things I love about this passage here is that you have these two doctrines that seem to be at odds with one another placed side by side. And I don't know if there's any other place in Scripture that makes these, these two things so clear. That not only is God sovereign over salvation, but... Man has a responsibility to respond because now Jesus calls out generally to all people to come to him. Let's look at verses 28 to 30. Jesus says, he's he's done praying, so now he, he speaks to the people. He calls out to the people, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here's what we need to understand, friends. When we get feeling very uncomfortable about God's sovereignty and salvation, this is what we have to understand. We have to understand that God is not preventing anybody from coming to Christ. He's not preventing anybody. He's not putting up any obstacles to prevent people from coming to Christ. God doesn't prevent people from coming to Christ. So what prevents people from coming to Christ? Our nature. 
our fallen nature, incapable of doing anything good. Are we incapable of doing anything good by nature? Is repenting a good thing? Is believing a good thing? Then it can't come from us. People freely choose not to come to Christ. That is man's nature, and there are no exceptions. None is good, none is righteous, none seeks for God, not even one. And yet, what we see here in these three verses is that Christ invites all to come to him. But he starts by making sure that those who come to him come to him because they're aware of their condition. Look at what he says. He says, come to me, who? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Given the context, it's clear that Jesus isn't saying, you know, if you're sick of your spouse, come to me. Or if you're sick of your job, uh, you know, come to me and I'll give you relief from physical labor. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about those who are weary and tired from all the troubles that they face in life. No, he can't be talking about that because elsewhere he promises that in this life we will have trouble. Uh, Paul says anyone who desires to live a a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. So what burden is Jesus talking about? He's talking about the burden of sin and carrying it around everywhere we go. He's talking about the burden of plugging yourself into a system, thinking that in this system, which is really just a treadmill of works, you can earn your way to God, a system that will undoubtedly cause somebody to grow weary, a system based on merit, not on Christ's merit, but on human merit. See, sin is a burden. It stirs up a sense of guilt and shame in us. The only time it stops doing that is when our conscience grows calloused, when our hearts grow calloused. And for the person who has not come to Christ, they have those sins on themselves. And they can't find relief for that burden anywhere. As Jesus looked at the people to whom he's speaking, he could see how weary they were, how burdened they were. He he knew how tired they had to be, and so it's out of compassion that he makes this offer. Come to me, because who else is going to take your guilt? Who else will bear your shame? Quit pretending that you're strong enough to do it on your own. You're not. None of us are. Who can remove these things from us? Who can take away this burden of guilt, of sin, of shame? Christ. Christ alone can. The truth is that this describes all people in their natural state, but not everybody realizes it. It, it, it's, It's describing everyone in their natural state, weary, tired, burdened, but only the humble and the lowly will hear and receive the offer that's being made here. Only those who realize how burdened they are, how sinful they are, will hear and receive the offer to come to Christ who will give us rest. Only those who understand why Christ alone can relieve us of this burden will hear and receive the offer that's being made here. See, the gospel applies To everyone, everybody is tired. Everybody is weary from carrying sin around. The rich and the poor are equally in need of the gospel. Men and women are equally in need of the gospel. Slave and free are equally in need. Jew and Gentile, I mean, the list goes on and on. Everybody, everybody needs the gospel. And everyone needs to come to Christ Because all are burdened by sin, and Christ alone can give us rest. See, the gospel views everybody in their natural state as being equally, utterly helpless, like infants. Here's the problem. 
That's an assault on somebody's pride, isn't it? See, the wise and the noble want to be regarded as wise and noble, not as infants. And if you, parents, back me up here, you know what I'm talking about. It's not just the wise and noble, the people who people really view as being wise and noble. Our nature is to view ourselves as wise and noble, even when we're not. Uh, Every parent can attest to that, because at some point, Kids will, uh, will let you know that they think that they've got things figured out better than you do. No matter how old you are, no matter how much wisdom you might have, it's in our nature to think we're wise and noble, not to want to be infants. So Jesus uses a metaphor to illustrate what he's offering. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, in our cultural context, most people don't know what a yoke is, except when you crack an egg open. Obviously, that is not what Jesus is talking about. What we should understand is that there are actually two types of yokes that would have, uh, that would have been common in this culture that Jesus is speaking to. There's the first kind, which joins two oxen together. Uh, so they're kind of working as a team. They're working in unison. You've got the force of two oxen instead of one because there's a yoke holding them together. Uh, some people think that's what Jesus was referring to here, uh, but there's a second type, and I think this is the type that Jesus was referring to here. Um, the second type of yoke in the ancient world, if a person had to carry a, a really heavy load, they would wear a yoke across their own shoulders to balance the load. Uh, it was kind of a, a beam of wood. If you'll picture a beam of wood going across a person's shoulders and it has maybe a large bucket or something on the end of each one or several buckets uh, lined up on each side so that it's balanced and that person then carries whatever it is they're carrying. I think this is the type of yoke that Jesus was probably talking about. It's physically exhausting for a person to carry that kind of yoke. But... Jesus wants us to understand that his yoke isn't like that. His yoke is easy. The burden wasn't heavy. It's not going to crush you. It's light. See, when you've put yourself into a system, a, a treadmill of doing this and doing this and doing this over and over again, you have a burden. You have a burden, a heavy burden, one that will wear you down. And Jesus is inviting everyone to lay their burden down and to take his instead. See, what he's saying is it's easier to submit to him. It's easier to serve him than it is to submit to a religious system that ultimately offers nothing of value except a lot of exercise because it cannot free you. No system of doing works on your own can free you from being a slave to sin. The only way to escape being a slave to sin is to be a slave to Christ. To be a slave to Christ. The only way. R.C. Sproul once said this. He said, quote, The supreme irony is that until we become slaves of Christ, we do not know freedom. End quote. Jesus' yoke is easy. And his burden is light. There are duties and there are responsibilities that come along with being a Christian, with with being his disciple, yes. But that weight is nothing in comparison to the yoke of slavery carried by those whose sins have not been taken from them. Now we should be careful to note that, that Jesus doesn't say that his yoke has no weight. He's not saying that your life will be nothing but sunshine and blue skies, sunny with a high of 65, which is beautiful. If you come to him, that's not what he's saying. In fact, we know that a person's life will actually become more complicated when they come to Christ because they can't just go with the flow and follow everybody else, follow the masses who are following the world and the devil and the flesh anymore. But Jesus promises that his yoke is easy. And that his burden is light in comparison to the weight of carrying your sin and the responsibility 
of having sufficient merit, having enough merit built up to stand before God as somebody who is forgiven and justified. Not only will Jesus take our sin from us, but he will give us grace to follow and to obey to all who come. So we're still not doing it on our own. The load that we bear in following Christ of of being a disciple and obeying what he's instructed to do, we don't do it on our own. We're given grace. We've got the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to help us. He's called the helper. Nobody knows God except through Christ alone. And nobody is saved by God except through Christ alone. And Scripture is very, very, very clear on this. If you do not know the Son, then you do not know the Father. You do not know God. If you do not repent and believe in Jesus, you cannot know God. The implication is that systems, all these, all these systems offered by other religions around the world, just leave people in darkness. Now, they, they may be very sincere in their devotion to their system, but there's no system that actually earns anyone salvation. If I say that 2 plus 2 is 5 and I'm being sincere, does that make me any more right? Just to say that I'm sincere? Is that narrow? It is, actually. And Jesus said it would be. He said this in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. He said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Every religion in the world says you need to do this and do this and do this. This is how religiosity works. This is how systems of merit work. Do this and this and this and this and this. But Christianity is very different. Christianity turns our eyes to the cross, turns our eyes to Christ, so that we may see that it's done. Christianity is not about do this, 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 and this, and you'll earn merit. Christianity is Jesus did that in the place of all who would believe in him. And his active obedience is credited to those people who believe in him. And that's what Jesus offers. He offers life. He offers eternal life, fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's found in Christ and Christ alone. Have you personally found these truths? Because they're only found in him. Have you found and experienced this rest that he's talking about? Yes, there's a rest that is to come, an eternal rest in God's presence. But have you experienced this rest from the burden of carrying your sin and your guilt and your shame? Because this rest is found in him, and it's found in him alone. If you have come to him as an infant, willing to take him at his word and to depend entirely upon his grace and his work of reconciling all who believe in him unto God, then you know that Jesus is not a cruel master. He's right here. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Sin is a cruel master. But Jesus is a loving and gracious master. If, if he has given you his burden, he's also given you the grace to, and the strength to carry that burden and to serve him faithfully until the end. It is a privilege and it is a delight and it is a deep, satisfying joy to carry his yoke. And I pray that you would know that for yourselves on a personal level. I pray that your hope, that your trust Your confidence in life and death is that Jesus took the penalty of your sin in your place and that the merit of Christ, his perfect righteousness, has been credited, imputed to you by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone, and that you would live your lives accordingly. Let's pray.
Our most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you give us to understand. Lord, as we hold these two enormous doctrines in tension with one another, your sovereignty and salvation, the responsibility of man, I pray, Lord, that you would give us understanding about it. Help us to see how these two things work together. But even above and beyond that, Lord, we pray that we would see that all of our, all that's necessary, all of our sin being atoned for, all of the rest that we seek, it's all found in Christ alone. We thank you for the recovery of this crucial and beautiful doctrine in the Protestant Reformation. And we pray that you would give your bride, the church, the grace to continue upholding this doctrine. That we would rejoice in the truth, rejoice in your grace, and rejoice in your goodness, which is hidden in Christ alone, for the glory of Christ alone. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus.